Well, again, good morning. Um, really is good to be back. I, I was maybe more excited about church today than I have been in a long time. You know, when you've been stuck at home all week, I guess anything would have fit the bill, but especially church. Um, really happy to be here. And we're back in 2 Samuel. Uh, so two weeks ago, we started looking at Abner's rebellion against the kingship of David. And we're going to continue that today. And it occurred to me as I was preparing for this sermon last week that as Americans, we are tempted to think of rebellion in a positive way. The United States began as a rebellion against a king. And we even love stories of rebellion, right? Um, our favorite stories, Star Wars, uh, you know, The Hunger Games, Divergent, um, pop culture's full of it, Les Miserables, right? We love a rebel with a cause. We like stories of rebellions, and the rebels are always the good guys, right? And because of our affinity for rebellion, and because of our own national history, I think that we need as a culture to work extra hard to understand the kingdom narrative, the kingdom theme in the Bible. Because rebellion, while it may be in our nature, is not always a good thing, okay? And so with that in mind, we're going to go back to the story of Abner in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Um, again, praying that God will use His word in our lives this morning. Okay, so 2 Samuel um, chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. <clears throat> says, Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Um, this is a considerable distance. So this is a battle march, and Abner is taking his army into the territory of of David, So they're crossing battle lines. Verse 13. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Notice that neither of the kings is present at this gathering. David is at home. Ishbosheth is at home. They are not part of this battle. Verse 14, Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. So Abner proposes this competition. And I think it's appropriate to think of it almost like a medieval tournament. Um, the word in Hebrew suggests that they are playing a game or having a sport of some kind. This is not supposed to be a fight to the death. It's also significant that they chose 12 men from each army. And most commentators think that the idea here is that they're using this tournament to try to determine God's favor. Okay? Which army is God with? Which side is God taking? And you've got 12 men representing the 12 tribes of Israel 
But things don't go as planned. Verse 16. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Harazum, Hazurum, which is at Gibeon. So, in other words, the game, the competition turns violent, and somehow all 24 men killed each other at the same time. And so, if they're looking for a sign from God, they got one. And the message was this I have not sanctioned this tournament. And I am not taking sides. But as the men fell, okay, so whatever this crazy event was, as they fall, we're told that battle breaks out and the two armies begin to fight each other. Verse 17. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Um, we're going to... We're not going to read the rest of the chapter, but in the story that follows, what happens is that Joab's brother Asahel pursues Abner and he's trying to get the glory for killing the commander of the other army. And it's kind of a scene like out of a war movie or out of the Iliad or something like that. Okay, So Abner is being pursued by this brother and he warns him twice, stop pursuing me. But Asahel keeps running anyways, pursuing him. And when he finally catches Abner, Abner surprises him with this trick move by kind of stabbing backwards with his spear. I mean, this is literally out of a movie. And so Asahel dies, which then creates this feud between Abner and Joab. Okay, And so um, I want to pause here and just kind of look at this rebellion. And I want you to notice that things aren't going well. Abner is trying to actively resist God's kingdom, and he's doing so by force. He, he enters into David's land. He is forcing a battle. He is forcing um, a, you know, a massacre, essentially. And the problem is Abner knows the truth. Abner witnessed the prophecies firsthand about David's kingship. He heard, if you remember two weeks ago, he heard Saul say, David will be king. But he is actively rejecting God's plan anyway. And what I want to suggest to you is that that's what rebellion against God always looks like. It looks like knowing the truth and actively rejecting the truth, even by force if necessary. You see, this is actually how Romans 1 describes the human heart. Paul says, although they, the people of the earth, knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And so, so what Paul is saying is that all creation, all human beings born in sin, 
have a lot in common with Abner. This, this forceful resistance against what God has revealed about himself and about his plan. That's what's happening in chapter 2. Okay, Chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> it says there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So in spite of the act of rebellion that's taking place, God is still working out his plan. David's kingdom is growing stronger. Now, what follows in verses 2 through 5 is a list of David's wives and his sons at this point. And the writer doesn't give commentary, he just tells us. We're not going to read them, but what I want to mention is that David had two wives when he moved to Hebron. And now, David has six wives. And we're not told how this happens or why this happens. Most commentators believe David was likely using these marriages for political gain. Um, he was not marrying people locally. He was uh, probably trying to unify tribes and local people groups and, and gain some traction for his kingship, which I believe was foolish. And ultimately, it's going to cause David a lot of problems. We're going to see this as we continue reading in 2 Samuel. And so I'm just kind of, I think the writer's throwing this in right now in the middle of the story to remind us David is far from perfect, okay? He's not, he's not always the perfect man, okay? So just keep that in mind as we continue the story. Verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So if you remember from two weeks ago, Abner used Saul's last remaining son in order to get power. And now that son, Ishbosheth, begins to realize that he is he's nothing but a pawn. Okay, so verse 7. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, something like that. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Now, we wouldn't know this, but this is a serious charge that he's making against Abner, okay? Um, sleeping with a king's concubine was in that time symbolic of taking his power. So if, if one king, you know, sacked a city and conquered another kingdom, one of the first things that new king would do is go into the harem. And it was symbolic of, you can't even protect your women, so I own you, basically. Okay, so this was a serious charge. Verse 8. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said to him, Am I a dog's head of Judah? I love that. Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. You see what he's saying? It's as if he's saying, I have the power to decide who's king. You hear that? 
And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. Notice that Abner doesn't actually deny the charges. He just... Misdirection, right? Verse 9. God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David. Again, look what I'm going to do for David. What the Lord has sworn to him. To transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah. From Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So we learn who has the power in that kingdom? It, it's Abner, right? And just like that, Abner decides to switch teams. But I want you to notice something very important. Abner's decision to switch teams has nothing to do with God or David. Abner's doing what's best for Abner. You see that? I mean, even the way he talks about it, right? I'm going to go do this. I'm going to make God's plan come true. You see the arrogance, how he's talking about this. Um, Even, you know, he even... You know it's not about David because in the middle of explaining himself, he uses some kind of ethnic slur, which we don't really understand, against the tribe of Judah in his reply to Ishbosheth. Am I a dog's head of Judah? Whatever that is, it can't be a good thing. So it's not like switching to Team Judah is something that he's doing out of a good motivation, right? And there's another important principle here in this story. First, he demonstrates his rebellion in kind of this forceful, open rebellion, right? But now, he's choosing to align himself with the kingdom of God on the outside. But we can see something different in his heart. And I think that's the principle. Brothers and sisters in the church, we may choose to align ourselves with the kingdom of God, at least on the outside, but in our hearts, it's still about us. It's not really about God and His will or His glory. You may be very religious. You may look like everyone else in the church. You may have the language down. The ritual's down. You may know what you're supposed to do to look like a good Christian. But if you're here for yourself, if it's not really about the glory of God, if the holiness of God doesn't humble you and stop you in your tracks when you consider it, if you think you're special because you're doing what God wants you to do, you realize that it's still a form of rebellion, don't you? Because it's still not about Him. You see, this was Jesus' problem with the Pharisees. What did Jesus say about the Pharisees? He called them hypocrites. And He quoted to them Isaiah saying, These people honor Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me. You realize it was the religious people who most wanted Jesus dead. 
In other words, rebellion sometimes looks like good church-going folks. It can look like me. It can look like you. Verse 12. Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. This is rather arrogant when you think about it, right? Very presumptuous. This man just finished attacking David's army. But the story continues and and David accepts the opportunity to peacefully unite the tribes. Verse 13, David said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Now, this is interesting. On the surface, David had the right to ask for Michael. If you remember from 1 Samuel, um, she was actually David's first wife, I believe. She was promised to him by Saul and then was taken away because Saul got mad at him and gave him to somebody else, gave her to somebody else. And so for David to ask for this, you could say, well, he, she was David's wife first. And it also seems politically expedient, which is probably actually why David is asking, because it gives David an opportunity to potentially unite his bloodline with Saul's and just kind of end the controversy of who should be king, right? But again, notice all throughout the story, there's a big difference between when does somebody ask God what they should be doing and when do they kind of do what they want and think it's a good idea? Which do you think he's doing here? Okay. God doesn't ask, or he, David doesn't ask God for wisdom. He doesn't go to the priest and, and cast the lots and decide what's best here. God doesn't authorize this. And what's interesting is, even though technically we could argue that David had the right to ask for it, this means taking a woman from her husband of many years, which actually foreshadows another bad decision that David is going to make in a few chapters. And ironically, even worse, Michael is going to die childless. Which means it was never God's plan for David and Saul's bloodlines to mix. And then we come to verse 14, which the next couple of verses to me are heartbreaking. Verse 14, And David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Remember that story? And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel the son of Laish. Verse 16. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. Now, it would be really easy for us to just kind of skip over this part of the story 
But I want us to pause for a moment, and I want us to grieve with this man. It's his only story in the Bible. Paltiel, the son of Laish. Okay? This man watches his one love, his only wife, being dragged away, taken to another man who's already got six wives. Probably why the writer puts that little tidbit about David in there. It's like the man's gone from two wives to six wives in like one chapter, and now he's taken somebody else's wife, and whether he deserves her or not, the writer doesn't tell us, but this is sad. And Paltiel is powerless to save her. What's he going to do? What could he do? His wife has become a bargaining chip in Abner's scheme to keep himself in power. Um, ironically, the name Paltiel in Hebrew means God is my deliverance, which sounds kind of ironic, right? When you think about the situation that Paltiel is in. Um, but this drama has meaning, and I, I want to suggest to you that it should remind us of Jesus and his bride. There is a hint of the way the Bible talks about the church, about Jesus Christ and His bride. Um, Paltiel, in this moment, the only thing he can do is weep for his bride and walk away. But Jesus did more than weep for His bride. He did the only thing that anyone could potentially do. He died to win her back. So even though we could look at Paltiel's story and be like, God was not his deliverance in that moment, right? It doesn't seem to be. But there's a hint of the gospel there. God is my deliverance. Jesus died to win back his bride. But I want us to continue. I just kind of want to make a point of that just because I thought it's just too beautiful to skip over, too devastating, but also just a beautiful story. But we're going to continue and finish up with the story of the Abner. So Abner keeps his bargain with David. He convinces the other tribes to recognize David as king. David throws this big party to celebrate, and then he sends Abner away peacefully. But there's a problem. You remember Joab? Remember Asahel? And the backward spear move, right? Abner killed his brother. Joab, while all this is happening, has been out on a raid. And when he gets back to Hebron, he finds out that David has made peace with Abner. And he's not happy about this because Abner killed his brother. And because Abner is also a commander of an army. And it's, it's a threat to his own position as David's commander. So do you know what Joab does? Joab sends for Abner, brings him back to the city and murders him. And when David finds out, he's furious. The reason David is so upset is, is I mean, one, it was murder. This guy left as a friend, not an enemy. It's also a political disaster because everybody is naturally going to assume that David ordered Joab, his servant, to kill Abner, right? I mean, that makes sense. But instead of letting that be the narrative, David actually tries to distance himself from the violence. 
He actually curses Joab and Joab's family, forces them to publicly grieve for Abner, the man that he killed. And then David even writes a song in honor of Abner. And it seems to work. Verse 36, it says, All the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. And so all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. So in spite of everything, all this crazy movie-like drama that's going on in these two chapters, God is still behind the scenes working out the details of David's kingdom. And through it all, David thus far has remained guiltless. He has no blood on his hands. And even though violence is happening all around him, David is so far, he is guiltless. He's not going to remain guiltless, okay? David's going to have his day. But so far, there's, this story is building and it's, it's mounting in such a way that we're supposed to be seeing, again, these hints of the gospel, okay? So in an effort to connect the dots, very simply, let me just say this. Our King Jesus, we understand, went to the cross to do many things. But one way to say it was that Jesus was establishing his kingdom. A new kingdom, right? A spiritual kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus went to the cross completely guiltless. But instead of the curse falling on the ones who deserve it, like Joab, The curse fell on our King, Jesus, so that we, the Abners and the Joabs in the story, can have a place in God's kingdom. I think that's the gospel theme or the narrative running through this story. So we are busy fighting for our own little kingdoms living in open rebellion against the kingdom of God. We will even we will even use the things of God and the people of God to promote our own agenda. And sadly not recognize that that's just as rebellious, if not worse in some ways. To be deceived into thinking that we are on God's team when really we're just using God's team. And that's why we need Jesus. All of us, equally. Whether your life to this day has been in complete and total, utter, open rebellion against Him. He's not my God. Well, nothing to do with this God. Whether that's you or whether you're the one who just is more likely to, oh yeah, I'm team, I'm team Jesus. Got the t-shirt. Right? But it's really about you feeling good about yourself and looking down on others in pride. All of it, rebellion against our King. All of it. And has always been our problem. That is where the impulse 
to sin comes from. That's what it looks like in the human heart. Do you remember the last speech that Samuel gave in 1 Samuel 12? It's very important. Look at this. He says, If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then he says, the hand of the Lord, remember this hand imagery? The hand of the Lord will be against you, and your king. The good news is that the hand of the Lord is against us and our king. But our true king is Jesus. And the hand of the Lord fell on Jesus instead of on us. It was not the king's will to put us to death. And that, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the kingdom. It's not that I've been good enough to get myself out from under the hand of the Lord. No, it's that our king, who didn't deserve the curse, took it on himself. That is the gospel. That's what this story and every other story in the Bible is about. And so, brothers and sisters whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, repent and believe today. Repent and believe tomorrow. And long live the King. Let's pray. Gracious Father, You've told us um, what Your will is for us. You have told us where we came from and why we're here, why we exist, what our purpose is, who we belong to. And if we're going to be honest, there's something inside every single one of us that doesn't like it, that fights against it. We want our way, not Your way. We want to feel like Abner, like we're in control. We have the power to create our own destiny, but it's just not true. And so, Father, I pray this morning that You would humble us and lead us to repentance. Remind me, remind all of us that there is one King and it's not me. It's not You. It's Christ Jesus. It's Your Son, Lord. We pray that um, You would help us to trust Him, to believe these things, to know that it is in Him alone that we have salvation, that we have a hope in the future. This is a simple message. There's nothing um, complex about what I'm saying today. It's just the Gospel. But it's what we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.